0: Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime.
1: Sudan. We're watching this, and it ties into so many other themes that we're hearing about. brings back a lot of memories of Afghanistan and the trouble and the cumbersome way that we were getting people who helped us in Afghanistan. It was such a a really poignant moment. And I I know, and I tell this story a lot, I mean, there were people who were just on their own who had worked there as reporters or diplomats or whatever. They were doing everything they could to get people out because we'd made that promise to them. And then when we watched Sudan, a different kind of a thing, as I asked at the beginning of the show, do you expect, if you're in a dangerous place, do we have to get people out? And then there is the other aspect. Sudanese Canadians watching this, calling relatives. One told me this week, calling his family left in Sudan and on the telephone hearing the war in the background, the civil war and the explosions So it all, you know, our military, our response, so many things tying into this, we're going to explore all of it with our next guest. He is David Perry from the Canadian Institute of Global Affairs. David, good afternoon. Thank you for joining us.
0: Great to talk to you.
1: It is kind of a conflation of so many stories. There has been concern about our spending, our defense spending. Then, of course, we had the, the leak of the prime minister getting real about NATO. And now we're watching even more of our military i'll say might or our ability as we see what is happening with sudan so many different aspects of this david first of all what are we seeing we know that the flights have resumed and they seem to be going ahead with sudan but for many who are watching it it was a bit of a stumble how are you viewing it
0: uh well i guess i'd have a slightly different take um in that uh Getting people out of conflict zones like that, especially ones that flare up uh, towards the end, relatively quickly, as opposed to say, looking at the the kind of chaotic exit from Kabul, which had a long, um, had a kind of a long planning period because the Americans there had given months of indication when they were going to leave, and it was you know kind of predictable so some of what happened in the security situation. What's unfolded in Sudan's um, sprung up with less advanced notice. And there's very few countries uh, in the world that have an ability to go in and be able to essentially secure landing facilities, secure an airfield. Uh, So getting... Canadians or, or other country nationals out of situations like that is pretty tough to do quickly. Um, and I do think does demonstrate, um, our close reliance on working relationships with other countries, the United States in particular, uh, and also part of the limits of, of what a military that's roughly the size of ours is able to do. Um, because we, uh, have fewer people with fewer dedicated specialized training, um, you know, and incidentally, we're not alone in that because there's not all that many other countries that can do it by themselves. But um, our ability to go into a situation like that is fairly limited and it's reliant on working with lots of other people.
1: So for those who are comparing it to the agony of Afghanistan, if I may may do that, you're saying they're two different situations?
0: I do think there there are two different situations in a couple of senses. One, in the Afghan situation, there was a lot more planning time to at least have contingencies in place for the date that the Americans were were pulling out, which wasn't present in Sudan. And I think the other huge difference is that um, unless I'm unaware of obligations or commitments that have been extended in Afghanistan, Canada had employed huge swaths of Afghans to work for us that were going to be put in very precarious situations in the event the Taliban came back. To power, uh, and that dynamic's not present in um, Sudan, at least that I'm aware of.
1: The the events and the scrutiny, may I say, on our national defense spending is not new, but there is an intensity. I mean, some of the some of the warnings that are being issued from former military officers and also from former defense politicians are ratcheted up a little bit that, and of course, the conflict in Ukraine is part of that, the seriousness of our NATO contributions. Where are we now, David? Would you agree? I mean, we've talked about this as a country and this has been debated for some time, but at this moment, it's being seen that it's becoming a little more critical.
0: It is, because the environment has changed around us, and we've now got the largest land war in Europe since the end of the Second World War. Uh, So I think that makes things much more tangible in one sense, because you're seeing in real life terms and and life and death terms, um, the impact of having military forces and the ability to to provide defense, um, either to yourself or to make contributions to another country, Ukraine trying to defend itself. Uh, And so you're seeing in real time the manifestation of what you do or don't have in your military inventory in a much more relatable way. Uh, And the other piece of that is that it's driving some uh, conversations with allies that are looking forward, driven in part by Ukraine, about what the NATO alliance should be looking at into the future in terms of how much uh, all of the allies contribute to defense. And I think the third component to it is that our military is facing um, a a number of pretty significant uh, difficulties that tie into its personnel situation. Uh, And a bunch of things have come together to leave the military many thousands of troops short of uh, the numbers that they're supposed to have. And that limits what they can do operationally in terms of whether or not, as an example, um, we would have the people, if a government wants uh, to make a – would like to make a significant military contract contribution to some kind of operation in Haiti. Um, Our chief of defense staff has basically said that we couldn't do that without um, having to make a choice to stop doing something else. And so those things, I think, have all kind of knit together to, to create the current discussion environment.
1: Yeah, they have. Let's stick with that just for a minute and use that as an example of procurement. We've been hearing about the challenges there for some time. But as you say, at this moment, it creates another kind of a barrier. What do, in your opinion, we need to do to fix the procurement problem? How do we get more people in the military?
0: So, you know, I think there's a couple things. I mean, one would be deciding whether or not as a country, we're really serious about it or not. And I think it's tough to find a lot of evidence that we are. Um, and if you're not serious about something, and if you don't make it a priority, then you shouldn't expect the results to be stellar. Um, this government hasn't had as much focus on defense as some other ones have, although to be uh, fair to them, they have... Con- They have earmarked tens of billions of additional dollars to the armed forces for future investment. Um, So they've been uh, pretty supportive financially in terms of of what we're doing on defense. But I don't think that the files have been a core priority of government. And it's difficult for governments to focus on a whole bunch of issues all at once. If you've got uh, a public administration system, which we do, which requires most of the decisions of consequence to be pushed really high, up the organizational charge to the senior leadership uh, of the government. You you can't do a whole lot of things at the same time, and we haven't had as much focus on defense um, as we would need to have if we really wanted to be doing meaningfully better at uh, procurement, at recruiting, and a whole bunch of other things.
1: You know, you've kind of hit it, and I wanted to go there as well. You know, I'm covering the story, certainly in my career, over and over again. And then we reach this moment, and then we're getting quotes. I mean, Andrew Leslie said on the show uh, recently that this was a moment of crisis, one of the most dangerous moments since the Second World War. And then, as you say, you have to ask, this is a conversation we've been having as a country. And to me, I know politicians do quite often, what they think will get them votes. And I turn it back to the Canadian public. Are Canadians engaged in this? And if not, is it up to the government to explain or is it up? How do we do that?
0: So I think Canadians uh, have actually shown an, an indication in some of the uh, polling that I've seen. Um They have indicated that they do care about these issues uh, and they are supportive of Canada taking a stronger position with things like military spending. even when asked uh, if they would do that and it would require, you know, the t- kinds of tough choices that our prime ministers talked about w- that would need to be made to, to spend more money on defense. Either not doing something else or, or asking the government um, to ask citizens to, to contribute more in terms of of taxes. So I think that there's a level of support that we tend to sometimes dismiss from the actual public for these kinds of things. And that happens in a vacuum almost because we don't, to go back to what I was saying, have a whole lot of um, – issue leadership on the part of uh, senior officials and politicians in this country to actually try and advocate for why we would want to do things like this in the way that we do have tons of issue advocacy on the part of government officials about things like um, climate change reduction measures And so you're having a bit of a conversation where we're trying to gauge how the public thinks about something that it isn't um, very often told is important for them to think about themselves. And even despite that, you get reasonably strong levels of support for Canada playing a strong role in the world.
1: If we don't do something about it, where are the leaky points here. We had Chinese balloons. We had America having to jump in. We've got Russia doing flybys over the Arctic. And we, so we we have election interference worries. We have China, Russia, and also concerns about Iran. In this immediate moment is how much of a, how much of a threat is this to our security in your opinion?
0: I think it's a pretty consequential one. I mean, you certainly hit the highlights there. There's lots <laughs> of things to be aware of. I guess, to me, the big takeaway uh, from Russia's invasion in Ukraine is that to talk about, you know, the kind of the language we use now to talk about we're into an era, again, of great power competition, which we'd sort of been out of for 20 or 30 years when the Cold War ended, that there are a couple of uh, large military and economic powers the degree to which um, they're either one of those things varies, but Russia and China, which are unhappy with the Western-led set of systems that Canada has massively benefited from since they were put into place after the Second World War, uh, and they're pushing in different ways to change that. So in the Russian case, by uh, literally trying to redraw some of the the borders on European maps um, and retake territory, as well as interfering in elections and doing some other things uh, in a way that um, the regime and the Kremlin thinks advances uh, certainly there, if not the wider Russian set of interests. And on China's part, uh, pushing pushing the boundaries to try and redraw lines on the map in the South China Sea, engaging in uh, different types of foreign interference and and um, trying to shape decisions in other Western countries through um, a bunch of ways of influencing people in the business community and political communities um, that are a little bit harder to, to track, but they basically want to reshape, uh, reshape the way the world operates right now to benefit them. Um, and for a country like Canada, which has benefited massively by the status quo that's existed since the end of the Second World War, uh, that's a concern. And I would, again, to go back to what Russia did in Ukraine, which is nonsensical from a whole lot of uh, a whole lot of viewpoints coming from a Canadian outlook, um, I think we need to be uh, we need to be a little bit humble about what we can be confident that we know about what other countries that are unhappy with the way things work will and won't be prepared to do.
1: And it also takes us back to our allies and how they feel about us. And that certainly seems to be growing that perhaps NATO can't rely on. Our country in the way that our country wants to be known around the world. We're quite chuffed with ourselves as being peacekeepers, but you can't do that. As we've just talked about at the beginning of this, if you have a problem with procurement, you don't even have the military might. And there's been lots of rumbling that perhaps Canada is losing the confidence of the allies. Would you agree?
0: I do think uh having the opportunity to sit in Ottawa and interact with people from other diplomatic uh, establishments in the capital that you increasingly hear more pointed language from Canada's allies about mm-hmm. Canada's actual contributions not what we say we're going to do but what we actually do in practice and the divergence between commitments to, you know, as an example, really re-engage in UN peacekeeping and then only do it for 13 months and then go back to having four or five dozen uh, troops on UN missions. Um, I think a lot of that is starting to coalesce into a more pointed set of frustration with Canada's actual practice not living up to our rhetoric. And we're seeing that um, manifest in a couple different ways. I think, you know, as an example, the AUKUS agreement between the United States, Britain, and Australia, which is in part about buying nuclear submarines, but is also about um, a high technology partnership between three close allies that treat defense and security very seriously. We're seeing um, increasingly that our our longstanding allies um, aren't simply interested in having Canada show up for a meeting anymore. Um, they're interested in having us make some meaningful contributions and they're not seeing our contributions in reality live up to the ones that we make rhetorically.
1: All right. Finally, I'm going to ask you, what would you do? You know, we talk about all the uh, the weak points of this. What do you think could change it, David?
0: I think the single biggest thing, uh, is to try and make it, uh, increase its importance amongst the, you know, the whole range of different things the government's trying to do. But if you don't make this a priority, then you shouldn't be all that surprised if the results, uh, aren't what they would be if it were. And I think, you know, we've seen over several years that these kinds of issues just simply don't get enough time and attention compared to other things that governments are more occupied with. Uh, And if you don't put the time and effort in, then, you know, we shouldn't be all that shocked that the results aren't uh, what they could be otherwise. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend.